Thank you so much, Jennifer. That was amazing. What is the truth you're standing on this morning? What promises are you having a hard time believing that God has made to you? That was a struggle that a man by the name of Binks Bowling had. He was described in a book written by Walker Percy. He was a wealthy stockbroker in his 20s trying to figure out what to do with his life. Even though he'd made a lot of money, even though in the eyes of the world he'd been extremely successful, what he found himself doing was hopping from bad relationship to bad relationship, relationship and ultimately just deciding he would pour his life into watching movies. Can any Netflix bingers relate? Something happens, though, that makes him want more than what he called the everydayness of his own life. And the rest of that book is about a search for things that truly matter. And he awakens to sounds very similar to what we experience today, like what is the nature of your search? The search is what anyone would undertake if they were not sunk in the everydayness of their own life. And to become aware of the search is to be on to something, and not to be on to something is to be in despair. Now, can you relate to that young stockbroker? Because it's very easy for us to get stuck in the everydayness of our own lives a job, a marriage, a stuckness is what I like to think of it as. And we'll become mindless if the mundane simply overtakes us. A job can only give you a sense of importance for so long. And then there's social media, where we display that 0.03% of our lives that we want everybody to see when we look our best, when we're doing our best, when our family's at their best, as though somehow, if people will like that, it'll give us a sense of importance and affirmation. And we can get stuck in a place of wrong beliefs if we're simply looking for affirmation or approval. The question I want to talk about this morning is how do I get unstuck? How do I get unstuck? If we have such a small view of God that he can no longer bring meaning into our lives when our practice in life and what we're doing in that everydayness really doesn't match what we truly profess to believe about God. This morning we're going to see what happens when God comes crashing in to the everydayness of life. The everyday problems, the everyday issues. We're going to be looking at John chapter 2. I'm going to start by reading verses 1 through 11, although I'm going to be looking at uh, two instances in John chapter 2, both the instance of turning water into wine and the instance of Christ coming into the temple and raising Cain. So if you would please stand with me for the first part of that chapter, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. 
his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. You may be seated. We're continuing on through the book of John. And now we're seeing the beginning of Jesus' signs. The first part of John is actually called the book of signs. And when you see an eagle displayed in, for example, a stained glass window with the apostle John, it was because a statement was being made that ideas in the book of John about Christ are lofty. So they would use an eagle to symbolize that. And this morning, I want to discuss what is happening as Christ comes crashing in to the ordinary. And his glory is being displayed. And he's making strong statements. But there's a problem with the people. They are stuck in the old ways of doing things. And even though they may say they are religious, they're missing God standing right in front of them. So I want to approach the subject this way. We'll talk about it in its original context. We'll go back and see that Christ showed himself, but he didn't just show himself, he showed his purpose. And then secondly, we'll look at the timeless truth that Christ brings replacement and fulfillment. He did it back then, he does it today. And then we'll talk about getting unstuck, examining three areas of our lives that we can often find our stuckness in. Let's look at this passage And uh, let's look at what's happening, because Christ is revealing both who he is and his purpose. He's God, and he's come to redeem. And we get to this miracle at a wedding party. It's, It's really kind of an odd miracle. He and his disciples and his mother have been invited to a wedding. That could be a a week long feast, as a matter of fact, a week long celebration. And they come in, and there's a problem. There's no more wine. Now, this is embarrassing. It's embarrassing for the groom's family, and sometimes they could even be sued for this. Mary's probably a friend of the groom, and she's feeling particularly bad for the groom. And what does she do? Well, she goes to her firstborn son, Jesus. She wants him to do something about this. Now, when you read that, you may be thinking that what Mary had in mind was, hey, do a miracle here. You know, do your thing, Jesus. That's probably not the case. This is probably more like mom coming to her firstborn saying, would you fix this? Jesus hadn't performed any miracles or supernatural signs. This is the the first thing that would indicate who he was. Now, his response is interesting. At first blush, it sounds like he's getting kind of snarky with mom, doesn't it? Like, woman, well... That's where we lose something in translation. That's really not the case. He's staying respectful. 
He's not referring to her as mother. He's not in that role anymore. He's in role of savior and redeemer. And then it seems like he's allowing her response to spur him on. Now, God would never act in a way that's not in accordance with his will. But he says, why are you saying this to me? He says, my time has not yet come. Now, he's not saying that his time has not yet come to perform miracles. He's saying, my time has not yet come in terms of my crucifixion. And he's basically saying, look, this is your business. Why are you talking to me about this? But then why does he act? He says his time's not yet come, but he does the miracle anyway. His answer is an illusion, illusion, not illusion, to his ultimate time on the cross. And he, he called that his hour, but what connects these events? Now, Mary, please do not miss this dear woman and how she responds. Because she gets it, see. She really gets it. Now, she may have come across initially as sort of one of this, these domineering matriarchy types. You know, that's coming in, there's a social event, things aren't going the way she wants them to. Boy, do something about this. Uh-uh. That's not what's happening here. See, she knows she's talking to God. She believes that. She responds with silence. Jesus knows the answer to he knew the need before he got there. He knew what was going to happen. That question is for her benefit. My hour hasn't come yet. What does she do? She quietly walks away. She doesn't nag him. She doesn't beg him. She accepts what he says. And then she goes to the servants. Do whatever he says. Let me tell you something. There has never been greater advice given to mankind than what Mary says in that simple statement. I could never do better than to tell this congregation, whatever God says, do it. Just do it. She knows she doesn't have to give him advice. What a dumb thing to do. She just stays quiet. She knows who he is. She says, I think he's better at taking charge of this situation than I am. She may have approached Jesus as his mother, but now she approaches him as her Lord. And what happened? She couldn't be more satisfied with the results. Jesus proceeds to act, and these Jews, they were accustomed to washing themselves before uh, a meal. It was a means not necessarily of getting the germs off, but it was because they were defiled by the world around them, particularly if they'd been in contact with, with Gentiles. Jesus takes those jars, and he says, fill them with wine. I'm sorry, fill them with water. He says, fill them with water. And they would have probably had some questions uh, raised up in their minds. Well, that's not what these pots were for. But their purpose and how he purposes them, whereas they were typically used for this ceremonial washing, it gives us a clue into one of the meanings of the story. Because see, that water represents the old order of Jewish law and custom. How they used to do things. Jesus is coming along and what's he doing? He's replacing it with something better. So he's making a statement here. 
from now on, you won't be doing these ceremonial washings. You see, I'm going to do a washing that's going to be good once and for all. You won't have to be repeatedly washing off the defilement. I'm going to do that permanently. And then the theme of this section is what we get to down in verse 10 when the head waiter of the feast comes in and says, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. See, that's the way they would operate. They would give them the bad stuff first. I'm sorry, they'd give them the good stuff first. They'd probably get a little buzzed, and they would drink the, the not-so-good stuff. Now, one thing I want to point out is this is not enablement by Jesus to alcoholics. We don't come to Christ and lay at his feet human abuse of a substance. Because it's not just alcohol. It could be food. It can be money. God gives us these good gifts to enjoy. And he's giving these people something plentiful. There would have been 120 gallons of wine that Jesus would have provided. The best stuff ever made. Could you imagine bottling this? So Jesus shows the obsolescence in the old system of doing things. I'm coming in with something better, far better than you could even imagine. And we're going to celebrate this. Now there's a second story that comes up in this chapter. I want to read the second half of chapter 2, and I'm going to show you the connection between this changing of the water into wine and Jesus' cleansing of the temple. So starting at verse 12. It says, after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The pastor of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons... Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show for us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it, was, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, again, there's themes that carry over from the previous story into this one. And John is connecting these. In the previous text, there was a wedding. There was a crisis, one that Jesus knew about. And he worked a miracle on that Jewish purification vessel. And now he comes to Jerusalem for this major festival in the city. And what does he do? He enters into the temple. This was the Jewish place of sacrificial purification and likewise he's going to do this symbolic work and the temple itself will endure replacement 
and fulfillment, just like those stone jars in Cana. Jesus is making the statement that he is the new temple. Now, how is that? His destruction and resurrection will make the reconstruction of this Jerusalem temple, it was just fairly new, it's going to pale in comparison. He's going to make it obsolete. Why is that? Because the temple had been the place of sacrifice. And he comes in, he said, this is my father's house. And he takes those whips and the cords, and he's there at the time of Passover. This would have been when the Jews would have returned to Jerusalem. They would have had a, a meal. They would have sacrificed an animal. They would have reflected on the, necessi the necessity of Passover. It was that celebration that looks back to the Old Testament when the angel of death passed over the home if there was lamb's blood that was put on the doorframe. And he comes in and he sees what's happening here, that his father's house is being misused. But see, Jesus is going to make the final sacrifice. And when he makes that final sacrifice, sacrificing in Jerusalem will not be necessary anymore. So the pilgrims are coming into town. They needed to sacrifice an animal. There's people there all too willing to sell them one. And he's saying, you're corrupting the purpose of this place. That was the main problem. That's what set him off. Notice what it says in verse 16 and 17. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take them away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The disciples were connecting what Jesus was saying to a psalm. It was Psalm 99.6. They understood the statement that he was making to them. And then in verse 18, when the, the people are pressing on him, who are you to do this? They said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Who are you to say that we can't buy and sell? And Jesus makes that cryptic statement at the time. They wouldn't have quite understood it about being raised up again. He's talking about his own body. I'm the new temple. Again, how is that? He's predicting his death and his resurrection. And he's making a new covenant with the people, a new covenant with God. And the services at that temple are going to be obsolete. As a matter of fact, he's going to have a conversation with a Samaritan woman. If you've been watching that series, The Chosen, you've, you've seen that conversation he has. And he tells them plainly, he says, the hour is coming when we true worshipers will not take, true, true worship will not take place in Jerusalem at the temple or in Samaria. He says it's going to happen in spirit and truth. Jesus is going to be the final sacrifice. In Hebrews 10.10, 10, he says, he will be once and for all the sacrifice. The sacrifice that was once for all. So he revealed himself twice here in the second chapter of John. Now Jesus was encountering people who were stuck. Some people believed, some followed, but he didn't trust himself. He didn't entrust himself to everyone. Because a lot of people just weren't getting it. They couldn't see that this was God in the flesh. He said, this is my father's house. So only one person could have made that claim. Christ is repurposing what they had been doing. 
And it brings this question to us. Are you okay with the new? Are you okay with the new life that Christ has brought to you? Are you okay with a new identity of being a child of God and receiving grace? Or are you still haunted by a past? Are you still clinging to affirmation from other people as though that's what you needed? Because this brings us to the timeless truth of the passage that Christ brings replacement and fulfillment. And Jesus replaced that lousy water with the best wine the world had ever known. And we see that Jesus applies abundantly for both belief and for blessing. Again, what a wonderful first miracle. And all through time, God has supplied for his people. If we go back to the Exodus, God brings his people out of that place, and he brings them into a desert. And they're like, why did you bring us out here? And he teaches them, I'm going to show you to depend daily upon me and nothing else. It was as much getting the Egypt out of them as it was getting them out of Egypt. And he's going to supply for them. They're going to have to learn to depend on him. And in the process, they learned to trust him. They learned about him, about who he was. And then we come to the time of Christ. And what did he do after he died? He was resurrected, and he proceeded to appear to an additional 500 people demonstrating them so there would be no doubts. I was dead, and now I'm alive. I'm demonstrating to you who I am. He's giving them abundance in terms of belief and blessing. They will know who he is. And for 2,000 years now, God's people have continued to believe. And there will always be a believing contingency of people on earth until Christ comes back. Jesus supplies abundantly for a belief and, and blessing, and ultimately it'll culminate in that final marriage feast of the Lamb that's going to happen in heaven. Jesus also confronted bad religion. And all through the New Testament, he's going to be challenging the stuck people, stuck with wrong beliefs about God, rejecting Christ. That always results in wrong practices and wrong behaviors. The Jews are of a mindset that it's a religion of rule-keeping. As long as they just keep the law, they're okay, but they're stuck there. And Jesus is saying that all of that stuff in the Old Testament, the rituals, the feasts, the celebrations, were all pointing to me. That's why he's going to replace all those feasts and sacrifices with a final sacrifice that we would follow up with the act of communion. He's going to replace all of those ritual washings from those ceremonial jars with a final washing that would be symbolized with baptism. The message comes to us because our lives are made new and repurposed because of the work of Christ. But see, we can also get stuck. Stuck in a rut of wrong beliefs about ourselves that stem from wrong beliefs about God. And I'll, I'll never tell you that the entirety of the Christian life is about happiness. That's just not the case. Christ grieved when his friend died. However, how often do we endure harboring feelings of guilt and shame and depression that are stemming from a wrong belief about our Savior? For example, we feel like we have to be perfect or get depressed when we fail or we feel isolated. 
So I want to take just a moment and examine these three areas of our lives where we can often feel this stuckness. Stuckness, I think it's worth examining. And first of all, examine your beliefs. Examine your beliefs. There's this wonderful book. Um, it's called The Search for Significance. As a matter of fact, I've, I've recommended it before. It's by a guy named McGee. But he asserts that there's four commonly held false beliefs that Christians have. That in order to feel good about ourselves, we must meet certain standards. We must be approved by others. That we'll be punished for our failures. And that we're incapable of change. He said all four of those we tend to hold. And if you hold those beliefs, you can expect to have a fear of failure. Or a fear that you won't try anything. Or a fear of rejection. Or you'll be addicted to the approval of others and always trying to get it. You'll have feelings of shame and hopelessness. And see, Christ addresses this. He came and demonstrated how dearly he loved us so that you would know that you're fully accepted, that he's never going to hold your past against you, that you don't have to try and make everyone approve of you to feel good about yourself. That's a horrible trap to fall into anyway. So examine what you believe. See, I constantly have to do this. There's a reason I come back to the scriptures and come back to this book time and time again. Because I struggle with it. And it's easy to become a green-eyed monster when you get on something like Facebook that tells you, well, you're not as well thought of as this person over here, or your family's not as great as that family over there. And in doing that, you can disbelieve what the scriptures say about you. Who knows you better? And these false beliefs that can get into us, it's one of Satan's greatest strategies. So if you experience this depression and isolation, take a moment and take stock. What do you believe about yourself? Do you believe what God says about you? Or is there some other story getting in there? And then secondly, what do you practice? What do you practice? In other words, what do you do? How do you spend your time? Um, what unhealthy habits are there and why? Because typically our beliefs lead to our practices. For example, I don't like to admit it, but if I'm stressed, I can find myself running to food. The answer's never in the refrigerator or the cabinet. My wife reminds me of this, but I'm tempted to look there anyway. Uh... Well, what am I stressed out about? Well, maybe I did a bad job of parenting. Maybe I'm not happy about some criticism I've received. Well, now see, I'm back to the previous point, number one. What am I believing? I'm probably believing that if I'm not approved by a certain person or people, I shouldn't feel good about myself. But see, that's the problem. Because see, God has completely accepted me. He said, Chet, I know how screwed up you are. And I love you anyway. And I saved you, and you're going to spend eternity with me. But you can get stuck in these wrong beliefs. They'll lead to wrong practices. Because God accepted me, I can take criticism. And I don't have to be afraid to live to please God because he has the opinion that matters. So what do you do? Are you spending your time binge-watching something? 
If so, why? Now, I'm not going to say never, ever do that. It's always wrong. But what I am saying is stop and ask the question, why are you doing that? Is it because you need escape? What do you need escape from? Is it a stress you're feeling? Why are you feeling that stress? Why do you do what you do? And then finally, examine your leaders. Examine your leaders. In other words, who is it that's primarily influencing you? Who do you admire? There's this article that was written by a woman named Edith Schaefer called The Art of Life. And she said that when I was a little girl, my mother would often say to me, Edith, I know just who you've been playing with today. She knew because I had become something like the other little girl, She's, which, whichever one it was. She said enough like her that the girl could be identified by my changed accent, my mannerisms, and other telltale changes. Because children often copy other children quite unconsciously. She goes on to say, so do adults. We're affected by the people we spend time with in one way or another. God makes clear to us that not only is it a sin to bow down to idols and worship or serve them, but there is an effect which follows very definitely. People who worship idols become like them. Be careful who you're allowing to influence you. Who you decide to read, who you decide to watch on YouTube. Christ came to set us free from bad teaching and bad philosophies and philosophies of men. We see it happening and unfolding right here in the book of John. So putting this all together, get unstuck by examining your beliefs, your practices, and your leaders. Don't stay in a stuck place. Christ came into the normal circumstances of life we could bring our normal problems to him. And then we wait for his answer. We do what he says. Earlier this week, I was able to go to uh, Estes Park. It was for a conference. You know, this is, this is suffering for the Lord, suffering for God. <laughs> I, it was a conference. I needed to go. And it's just some of the most, it's the second time I've been there. And it's just the most, um, if you've been there, you know, some of the most amazing views in all the world. You can see right there in that park. Now, there's a road that goes up into Rocky Mountain National Park, and from place to place, that road has a guardrail. That guardrail is there to keep you from flying off. But imagine going up that road, and the only thing you noticed was that guardrail. You see, the whole point of that road is to get you to places so you can see beautiful things. And that guardrail is only there so it can keep you on the road. And if that's the only thing you see, you've missed it. You've missed the whole purpose of being there. And I think what haunts me about this passage that we looked at today is that it wasn't the pagans and the worldly people that missed Jesus. It was the religious people. See, don't get stuck in a place of wrong beliefs about God. Don't get stuck in a place of finding approval from others. It's like looking at that guardrail and missing everything else. And don't miss the beautiful views of Christ because you're caught up in beliefs of your own making. Please pray with me. Almighty God, I pray that we would not get stuck. And Lord, for those of us who are stuck with wrong beliefs, missing out on the wonders that you have, missing out on the joyous relationship we can have, instead getting stuck in a place of a fear of rejection 
or a need for constant approval and affirmation. Lord, I pray that you would get us unstuck so that we wouldn't be afraid to take risks. We wouldn't be afraid to look to you and, and try things and new things because we know that ultimately our acceptance comes from you. And Lord, you enter into the ordinary, the ordinary everydayness of our lives, just like you did in that wedding, just like you came into that temple. And you show yourself to us. Lord, I pray that we would not miss it. And I pray, God, that we would not miss you, Lord. For anyone here today, Lord Jesus, has not yet placed their faith in you. And they're living in a place of stuckness. And they don't know where to go. They don't know how to get out. I pray that today would be the day that they put their faith in you. And we ask this all in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.